Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Modern science has not only shown us how fragile human life is, but even the entire planet or the entire universe as we know it is on the edge of extinction. Perhaps only the already dead, the zombies and the vampires, will have the strength to survive the apocalyptic disasters so often predicted these days, involving exploding sunspots, gigantic volcanoes, meteor attacks, and rampaging epidemics that can wipe out whole populations in an instant. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager, and we just began the show with a quote from Mary Halab uh, from her article, Vampires in Medical Science, that was printed in the February 2015 issue of the Journal of Popular Culture. Why? Because we're going to talk about the physics and mathematics of vampire bloodsucking today. Yeah. Now, uh, if you're a long-time listener to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, and you visit our website, perhaps you're familiar with... Uh, Monster Science, a video series. You know, from all these, uh, avenues that we've, we've touched on, uh, on vampires before in the past. Mm. Uh, this time we're, we're largely going to deal with, uh, you know, a little, uh, little physics, a little, um, fluid mechanics, uh, a little mathematics, as well as, uh, just taking you through the, the evolution of natural world vampires as well. Uh, but yeah, certainly we love vampires here at Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I think as, as, uh, you know, as a people, uh, humans uh, cannot get over this Still concept. Going. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as you know, uh, we are fans of and uh, did an episode on The Strain. That's right. Uh, yeah. And it was interesting. There was stuff in the research for today's episode that brought up The Strain for me that I didn't find when we were doing research on The Strain. Um, like, in particular, different kinds of tongues and bats and how they uh, uh, consume blood. Yeah, I mean, we could really just do vampire episode after vampire episode yeah. and find just new There's probably each a time. whole podcast out there about yeah. vampires. I mean, even when you get into just our fascination with it, just the the mythological appeal of of, va- of vampires, you know, despite our best efforts to just totally kill it yeah. with 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 a know, stake with, in the heart, yeah, with a stake in the heart, <laughs> especially uh, a cinematic stake in the heart through some of just the sort of trite rehashes that we see over and over again. Yeah. Uh, we still can't get enough. There's still something just hideously romantic about the vampire. Oh yeah. I'm always on the lookout for a good new vampire movie. Um, and it, I think the last one that I saw, uh, did you see Byzantium? I did not. I think I have it in my queue. It's an interesting movie. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not like mind blowing or anything like that, but it was, it was a nice take on the vampire mythos. Um, like, I love how the strain has done, and we talked about this in the strain episode, how they've like really taken into account like anatomical differences in nature mm-hmm. uh, incorp- and incorporated that into their vampire mythos. Um, but yeah, I just, I, as a horror fan or maybe just as a cinema fan, I'm always waiting for somebody to find like the next cool hook on it. You know, I'm like, I'm thinking of near dark. Do you remember? Oh near yeah, dark? yeah. Near dark was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, Bill Paxton mm-hmm. had a great role in that. Yeah, Lance Henriksen, too. Uh, Pretty it, much everybody from Aliens, I think. Yeah, yeah. It was right. a, what, a Catherine Bigelow film? It was, yeah. 
Now, for the purposes of this episode, uh, again, we're gonna we're going to limit our discussion of vampires to physics, mathematics, and evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basic real world biology, uh, without getting very you know without doing too much in the way of dragging in any more folklore, mythology, uh, film history, etc. Yeah. And uh, really, the best place to start, in my opinion, is. Um, is, is by looking at bats. I mean, bats are pretty much the vampire bat is one of our our, our most prevalent modern examples. Uh, the, the the main parallel between a, the idea of a blood drinking human uh, in fiction yeah. is a real life blood drinking um, vertebrate. You know, what's interesting about that that I learned uh, doing research for this episode was I had always assumed that we called them. Sorry, I had always assumed that the vampire myth came out of people having witnessed vampire bats. I did not realize that it was sort of like uh, the Hydra that we've talked about recently, Mm -hmm. that uh, it was actually the myth that came first. And then when we discovered vampire bats, we gave them the name. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Because these areas where you, many of the areas in the world where you had the vampire uh, mythology, you didn't actually have any um, blood drinking uh, bats. They're only in South America. Yeah, Yeah. and and part of that has to do. I mean, most of it has to do with uh, with some of the limitations of blood drinking. So let's talk about the uh, the bats and the birds. They have a great deal in common. Yeah, they're very different organisms. And the birds, we have uh, the avians that emerged about 150 million years ago in the Jurassic period and went on to fly, swim, trot, burrow all over the world. Meanwhile, uh, mammalian bats date back uh, between 75 and 100 million years. And uh, it's harder to say because... Uh, um, Quote, bats are one of the most diverse groups of mammals today. They are one of the least common groups in the fossil record. Bats have small, light skeletons that do not preserve well, and we have very little information on the early evolution of the group. And that's from a University of Edinburgh page uh, that I'll link to in the landing page for this episode that deals with just sort of the basic evolution of bats. Have you ever uh, been to or heard of the bridge that's in Austin, Texas, that just has, like, millions of bats underneath it and if you like hang out there at the right time of night you can just see them all swarming out <laughs> i've seen video it. of it yeah yeah i i uh, went to austin on vacation two years ago and it was awesome like mm-hmm. we, we got to see it and it, it was really uh really something to behold but also uh, apparently our co-workers who were in austin recently for south by southwest we're going to try to do a video on it but the bats wouldn't come out <laughs> ah <laughs> they were not cooperative um so both bats and birds learn to fly in their own ways uh, and there are there are other fascinating examples of their uh, convergent evolution. Uh, several dozen bat species uh, and more than 300 species of hummingbirds evolved to resemble each other anatomically uh, and behaviorally solely because they existed in similar environments and exploited a similar resource, that being nectar. Yeah, so uh, nectar-feeding bats... They have pretty strange anatomies as well. Like, I think we hyper-focus on the vampire bats, but really, uh, I think it's something like three out of like a thousand and one hundred bat species, uh, drink blood. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's kind of interesting that we focus so much on that, but, so these nectar-feeding bats, there's one called the orange nectar-feeding bat, or it's a, a Latin name is Loncophilia robusta. 
Uh, it can extend its tongue out to drink the nectar, and it has grooves on its tongue that undulate like waves forming a conveyor belt to just basically conveyor belt <laughs> drag the nectar up to it, its, uh, its gullet. And the way, the reason why is that these bats weigh 15 grams each. They have to drink 1.5 times their own weight every single night. So that means that each one of these bats has to visit somewhere between 800 and 1,000 flowers every night in order to survive. Um, so it has to be really quick. That's why it's evolved this crazy tongue. Uh, it only has two second visits. So it's just like, boom, flies into the flower, whoop, sucks out the nectar with its crazy tongue and flies away. Now imagine something like this with somebody who drinks blood, right? Right. Um, and in fact, there's also a bat in South America that has a tongue like the vampires in the strain that we had talked about. Uh, its tongue is 1.5 times the length of the rest of its body, and it reaches all the way down its throat between its sternum and its heart. So it's just this huge organ that's shooting up out of its body through its mouth, grabbing, this is a nectar drinking one again, Mm -hmm. grabbing the nectar and then yanking it back down. Um, But those are nectivores, right? And we're here to talk about sanguivores. Yes, sanguivores, the blood drinkers. Uh, And there's little or no convergence between birds and bats when it comes to drinking blood. Uh, now, there are birds that occasionally or even frequently feed on, on blood. Um, vampire finches of the Galapagos Islands occasionally feed by drinking uh, the blood of other birds. Uh, and meanwhile, you have, you know, plenty of examples of birds that feed on ticks and other ectoparasites on large, uh, animals. And they sometimes cross that line between dining on stolen blood and stealing it for themselves. Mm. But none of these birds is an obligate Sanguivore, an obligate blood drinker. The vampire bat stands alone among all vertebrates as the only aerial or terrestrial obligate blood drinker. It's all they consume aside from their mother's milk. And so to give you a comparison to those nectar drinking bats that I was talking about earlier, blood is actually pretty skimpy when it comes to protein and fat, the kind of energy they need. It's 80% water. So vampire bats get almost no fat at all out of it. Subsequently, they have to consume, this is different from the nectar ones, they only have to consume half their weight in blood each night to stay alive. Imagine if you and I had to do that, if we had to consume (laughs) half our weight in blood. Like, that's even uh, uh, fantastic by the imagination of vampires, right? Like, that's a lot of blood. And we're going to get to that later on when we talk about the physics of actually drinking blood from a thrall if you're a vampire. Yeah, I think that's certainly certainly something that's very important to keep in mind here, though, is that that blood is not this just font of energy and resources. Uh, There's... There's very little power in the blood. And for a vampire bat, and certainly if you're going to extrapolate that and say a, a vampiric human, if they are going to make this their sole um, feeding method, if this is going to be the only place they get their energy, it is. It's pretty skimpy. You're talking about living on the very edge here. Yeah. And there was a, you know, I think it's easy for us to say, like, well, for for us, you and me, because we love our monster science, it's easy for us to go, yeah, there's science to be had there. But it's easy for us as a culture to go, well, vampires, that's just some made up stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's nothing real going on there. But in fact, there is a collision in the 1700s between medicine, science and the myth of the vampire. Um, and this comes from that Mary Halab article that I quoted at the beginning of the episode. 
rural peoples in the 1700s, they relied on traditional medicine to ward off vampires. And to them, taking an interest in something like the supernatural was their means of conducting scientific inquiry. So what they would do is they would pay a fee to somebody uh, who said, yes, I'm a vampire expert. I have been trained uh, and I can prevent the spread of this. Right. So an example. Um, and I wonder I, I thought of you when I was reading this, because I'm sure you've heard of this before. In a Serbian village, people thought there was a deceased soldier named Arnold Paul, and he kept coming back, quote unquote, as a vampire and attacking villagers. Uh, and what happened was, you know, it resulted in two waves of sort of a vampire panic that lasted. Uh, one was three weeks and one was 40 days after he died. They eventually had surgeons show up uh, and disinter his body so they could attest, yes, this is indeed a vampire. Uh, and so one of these doctors, his name was Dr. Fluckinger, uh-huh. and Dr. Fluckinger brought this story to Western Europe where it was actually debated uh, amongst uh, a lot of medical professionals, uh, in particular in Germany. And there was also uh, Dr. John Polidori, who wrote an influential story about vampires that is actually uh, Mary Shelley talks about at the beginning of Frankenstein. These two events together by two medical professionals may have been responsible for establishing vampires as fantasy and not as rural you know, uh, a supernatural fact. Huh. Uh, and so, uh, basically the German academics and doctors debating this led to, uh, the original Pope Benedict in 1749 declaring these vampires are superstition. They don't actually exist. And that was sort of the beginning of it, uh, of us acknowledging it as fictional. Huh. Interesting. Now I know a lot of you are probably wondering, okay, so, so we, we've already talked about the rarity of uh of a of a mammal drinking blood as its sole uh, uh form of sustenance uh and and we we've, we've talked about what a poor form of sustenance blood is yeah. so how do we get to that part via evolution why are there so few species that do it well the the vampires in question likely emerged 26 million years ago but we already mentioned bat fossils uh, are, are not uh, easily come by. Uh, and sure, we have a few fossil vampire bats, including a 30% larger uh, Desmodius Dracula. Uh, but, nice. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a wonderful. I mean, uh, <laughs> but uh, but these are these are total vampires. Uh, you know, we don't really have those transitional forms. Right. Uh, and, and a part of this comes from the fact that you see, see so many of these bats that have delicate bones and they're, you know, in tropical region fossils of them are rare. So we just have a few hypotheses as to how vampires emerged. Uh, one hypothesis is that, uh, the proto-vampire bats, the, they, the, these ancient species, they weren't quite vampires yet. They fed on blood-engorged ectoparasites found on large animals, much like these various, you know, uh, tick-eating birds, mm-hmm. you see on, you know, oxen and rhinos and whatnot. Um, so we're, you know, we're talking fat, fall off the rump, prehistoric ticks. Uh, and, and, you know, earlier we mentioned the blurring the <laughs> I line. I love that term, <laughs> fall off the rump. Yeah. They fill up. They're just, they're just there. They're, yeah. they're, it's a, it's um, like they, once they're full, they can't hold on any longer. Yeah. They're, yeah. and they're mostly the blood of another species, you yeah, know? Right. Um, and they're just there for the, the, the picking. We, we already mentioned that the lines are often blurred between parasite eater and just, a, just an eater of blood. Uh, and it's the same deal here, supported by the fact that 70% of bats um, are insectivores. 
So, you know, granted, ticks are arachnids, but still, you sure. get the idea. They're used to eat. These are the type of creatures that they eat already. And then if certain bats uh, began to depend more and more on, on parasites, mm. you can see where the transition could take place. Uh, plus, there are anecdotal reports of vampire bats preying on vampire moths, which is interesting. And, yeah. and yes, there is a vampire moth, uh, and you'll find it in Malaysia, uh, the Ural Mountains, and also southern Europe. Uh, I'm just like imagining as we're explaining all these various uh, different types of species with vampire in front of their name that there's like, so I'm sure there's got to be a fictional account there somewhere of like uh, mythical vampires, but they like turn like a bear or something like mm-hmm. that. And then you've got like vampire bears duking it out with vampire humans, <laughs> you know, who's going to uh, eventually survive on the food chain, right? If vampire <laughs> bats are eating vampire moths. What's eating vampire humans? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Whole vampire whales. <laughs> vampire whales. See, that one, that has not been explored at all. Not yet. I think we've got a, we should copyright that. <laughs> so, uh, Bill Shute, uh, wrote a wonderful book uh, titled Dark Banquet, Blood and the Curious Lives of Blood Feeding Creatures. Highly recommend uh, anyone interested in this topic, check it out. I noticed that this book was cited in multiple of the uh, resources that we were looking at for this article. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a great one. It's uh, it's one that's you know very readable for a general audience. And he goes into not only vampire uh, bats, but he goes into various insects as well. So mm-hmm. it's a you know a thorough, uh, engaging uh, exploration of the topic. But he points out that uh, mutual grooming behavior may have played a role in the evolution of vampire bats as well. Because uh, vampire bats are highly social. They spend 5% of their time grooming one another. And Shoot suggests that they may have had their first taste of blood consuming each other's ticks and bed bug species. Hmm. Okay. So, you know, it kind of, so, you know, they're in this situation where they're like, oh, these are great. Yeah. We should go try and get more of these. Why don't we just get it direct from the tap rather yeah. than, yeah, take out the middleman. Now, it's also worth noting that bat expert Brock Fenton disagrees with Another all this. Another great name, Brock Fenton. Brock Fenton. I'm a, I'm a fauna expert. <laughs> so <laughs> Sorry, he, Brock. <laughs> Brock points out that ectoparasites are small. Uh, ectoparasites are difficult to find on other animals, and vampire bats are restricted to the Americas. So there's some possible problems with this hypothesis. But Fenton presents hypothesis two, and that's that proto-vampire bats fed on insects and larvae crawling around the wounds of large prehistoric mammals. You know where I first heard this theory? Was on uh, Dr. Anton Jessup's episode of Monster Science, oh, where yeah. he talked about vampires, because that was where I learned the term megafauna. Yes. Yeah, megafauna, the the, the large uh, you know t- today we pretty much are down to you know just elephants is like the really great example of yeah. megafauna in the old, old days uh, when they could be sustained you had uh, plenty of other creatures as well kind of uh, like a osidax with a whale yeah yeah exactly similar yeah because you have this large creature this just bounty of resources yeah it gets a cut on it right that becomes a just a an area of increased economic uh, uh, activity. A lot mm. of uh, organisms trying to feed off of it, and then who's going to feed on the feeders? Yeah. Well, then perhaps that's where this this begins. The vampire bats or the proto vampire bats they volunteer and jump in there to get some of the, uh, the the goods. So there's a lot of back and forth on this hypothesis as well. And then finally, there's uh, an arboreal feeding hypothesis, and this is the idea that proto-vampires foraged in trees, feeding on small vertebrates, and over time they evolved uh, to capitalize on larger prey uh, that they couldn't kill. At first, they bit the animals that slept in the trees, and eventually they adapted to prey on ground-dwelling animals as well, because that mm-hmm. gets into how vampire bats actually work, is they, they swoop down... Um, 
uh, and, and they, uh, they open up, uh, just a small opening on a, like a sleeping cow or what have you. Right. And then lap the blood. Yeah. They're not draining a cow dry. It, and it's the interesting, uh, connection here to the studies we're going to be talking about later is the premise really is the same for like, uh, the vampire human myths, right? Which mm-hmm. is, is that, uh, you know, essentially it's not economical for a vampire bat or a vampire human to drain you dry. They need to come in, do it quick in such a way that you probably won't even notice, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where that, like, uh, comparing it to the nectivores is important because they've only got that two second window. So if a vampire bat just flies up to a cow, uh, makes a small incision, laps up a little bit of blood for a couple seconds and then flies away. The cow's probably not even going to notice until uh, the next day when it starts itching. Yeah, because it's also, it's very much a stealth activity. Again, they're, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a, a business model, right? right? They can only extend so much energy to pull off this heist and still make a profit. Yeah. Like the, the vampire bat cannot get into a situation where it's going to try and wrestle a cow. It's not going to work. It has I'd to love to see itself. it. <laughs> I'd love to see it. I, yeah, and I suppose vampire bats are also probably not uh, cooperative enough that they've come to the point where, like, they're just going to swarm onto a cow and just drink it dry, you know? Yeah, well, I think it's one of those things where, yeah, one vampire bat's going to get away with it. Like, yeah. one one criminal can rob one store. Mm-hmm. All six criminals cannot rob the same store at once. There's competition yeah. for resources. All right, so this brings us to the, the, the process of drinking blood itself. How do you drink blood as a mammal, as a vampire bat? And then what could that possibly tell us about how it might work for a human? Mm. Um, and, uh, it's, a lot of this is chemical. Um, the vampire bat makes a small cut and laps, does not suck the blood. And uh, while the average wound inflicted by a vampire bat would likely stop bleeding in one to two minutes, there are key ingredients in the vampire bat's saliva that interfere with clotting for several hours. So you, you're talking about a really a, a complex chemical cocktail in the saliva. So, yeah, we would definitely have to assume that any kind of vampire, uh, humanoid-sized vampire, would also be producing an anticoagulant. That's right. I wonder if they get, I, I haven't watched enough of like True Blood or anything like that, but I wonder if they get into that with, with uh, those shows. I do not remember uh, from all my time watching True Blood. Yeah. Um, now, now some people, some experts also speculate that there's often a pain killing and or skin softening enzyme in the saliva as well, uh, as the, the bat will lick before they bite. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. again, the, the, the saliva is a, is just a cocktail of essential, uh, blood drinking chemicals. Yeah. And, uh, that they lick. They cut, then they lap it up. And those tongues work very similar to that nectivore I was describing, that it's just kind of like this uh, conveyor belt that's just like working like a piston the way that it licks. When you watch the slow motion videos of these things, it's kind of stunning. Yeah, it causes the, this movement, causes the blood to flow along a pair of grooves on the bottom of the tongue and into the mouth. There's even a cleft in the lip that allows the flow of blood. And wasn't there like a period of time where some scientists thought that that... Uh, the the flaps on their nose were what were making the cuts themselves and yeah. not the fangs. Yeah, there yeah, there was, but of course it turns out that all most of that has to do with echolocation. It has yeah. nothing to do with feeding. But uh but yeah, if you're just looking at these these crazy looking origami bat faces, <laughs> mm-hmm. you could I, I can imagine one producing that theory. Like, oh those look kind of sharp. Maybe they kind of slash their face back and forth and open right. open a vein. So again, think of this though as as a heist. It's really a high stakes heist for the vampire bat. Right. Um, so they're they're absorbing, uh, they're taking in this blood, 
and uh, absorption of the uh, of the 80% of the water that makes up the ingested blood this uh, carries to the kidneys and then into the bladder for excretion so they may have to fly off at any moment mm-hmm. when that cow begins to wake up wake up and they're peeing a lot right yeah yeah cuz they're having to process <clears throat> this in real time that yeah. sudden weight gain could be lethal it can't carry around that much useless water so it needs to just pass it as quickly as possible um so these cows are getting bat golden showers at the same time uh, you could put it that way. Uh, yeah, there's a, they, they end up having to, to urinate a little as they're feeding. Um, approxim- and approximately 25% of the blood volume consumed is excreted as urine in the first hour after feeding. So, again, you gotta, you got to get rid of the useless water as quickly as possible. And still at the same time, there's a constant dehydration risk because we're talking mm-hmm. about a lot of urine here. And mammals uh, break down amino acids into uh, urea in order to prevent the toxic buildup of ammonia. The vampire bat's digestive system cranks up more and more with feeding to eliminate the waste. But in doing so, there's just this constant risk of dehydration. So they're just constantly one step ahead of dehydration, yeah. which is another reason that you you only find vampire bats in very, uh, very moist uh, environments. Oh, okay, okay. And that's uh, somewhat similar to what we talked about when we looked at the science of the strain, right? You remember the, the vampires in the strain are just like, I think as they're feeding, they're constantly emitting ammonia or something like that, mm-hmm. right, as like a waste product. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I haven't watched a lot of the TV shows. No, that, I think I they think track that, them that way, right? Yeah, and they I think like that, that backs lights. up. I think they do that in the TV show, don't they? Like they track the ammonia stains with like UV lights or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe they do, and that that would fit in nicely with this uh, with the research here. Yeah, Del Toro once again looking at his anatomical <laughs> manuals. Yeah. So, um, he, so again, it just comes back to this idea that that it's a very very high risk. Mm. Fringe lifestyle that the vampire bat is left with. They can't really store up a lot of fat. They can't. This is another reason you don't find vampire bats in cold environments. They can't. They can't sequester themselves away for the winter in a cave because right. they constantly have to get that blood. They're more like a hummingbird than a, a true carnivore. If only vampire bats could keep thralls. If they could keep like, like, uh, uh, like maybe a mouse-sized thrall in their nest, and they just drank a little bit. Here and there, but the problem is, is they have to drink so much, right? Yeah, yeah, indeed. If they could do something like so they need a lot of thralls. Yeah, they would need a lot of thralls, or set up some sort of honeybee environment mm. where they're they're essentially making like blood honey and storing it away. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> maybe they'll get there one day, but for now, we we've got this Earth vampire bats. Yeah. Well, that actually leads pretty nicely into uh, what really brought us into talking about this. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about a brand new study that looks at the physics of how we would drain blood from a human being if they were our vampiric thrall. All right, we're back. And we, uh, so far we're looking at, uh, we're, we're trying to imagine a, a, a humanoid vampire. We're looking at an emaciated, stealthy Nosferatu that slips into your bedroom, licks your neck with us and then with a strange grooved tongue, then slices it with a specialized tooth and then laps up the blood before, and pees a little bit before slinking right. away into the night. Yeah. But how long does this uh, Nosferatu in question have to feed? Well, the answer has been discovered, and it was actually just discovered last fall. And uh, actually, Robert has written about it already. Uh, we were inspired by this. We both saw the study on the same day. Oh, no, actually, you found it. Did I? Yeah, oh, I was you, the one who found yeah, it? Yeah, you were the one who found it. Oh, okay. It. Yeah. And we, we, we have pitch meetings here. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the week, uh, we both pitched the story, and then... Uh, 
you know, our editor said, you guys got to do this. And I said, well, it's monster science. That's Robert. Robert's going to do the vampire as long as we get to do it for the podcast. And I ended up writing about Batman. And oh, Superman. Yeah, yeah, you did about the various Superman, Batman, yeah. uh, 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 interaction. So you got the bat kind of, I did. In one yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but that was the inspiration for us to dive into this. Cause we said, this study is so cool. Let's extrapolate it outwards and really look at the physics of it. And it turns out a lot of people have done research into this. So let's talk about this study. Yeah. This, uh, comes to us, uh, from the university of Leicester, uh, in the UK. It was published in the journal of physics, special topics. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, a whole team of researchers here worked on it. They decided to just weigh in on just how much blood a human vampire would drink and how long it would take them to drink. Because I don't think this is anything anyone really uh, put a lot of thought to in the past. But there mm-hmm. are, you know, there there are going to be limits here. I hope people making vampire movies and television going forward take this science into account and use it in their calculations, uh, including the mathematics that we'll talk about after this, too, because there's a larger uh, game at play here. But let's we're going to zoom right in and look at a vampire lord. And their thrall, yeah. the premise here being that you don't want to just drain your thrall dry, right? You want right. to keep them on hand so that you've got a constant tap of blood available. Yeah, you want to be able to come back uh, however often. I'm guessing, uh, you know, if, if you're going by uh, like blood donation standards, mm. it's going to be over a month uh, between well, visits. Yeah. If they're playing by the rules. Yeah, well, and that's assuming that this uh, humanoid sized vampire doesn't have to drink as much blood uh, comparative to its body weight as a vampire bat does. Otherwise, they just have, like, a basement full of people that they're drinking from constantly. Right. So the first thing they had to decide is, yeah, how much um, how much blood are they going to drink? And so based on information from the American College of Surgeons Advanced Trauma Life Support, or ATLS, uh, program, the researchers uh, figure that uh, that amount would be about 15% of your blood volume. Technically, that is the, that's the upper limit of a class one hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. So, hey, if you're a thrall out there, do not let your vampiric overlord talk you into a class two hemorrhage that's yeah. over 15% unless he's willing to make good on his promise well, to turn you. And actually, the gist here is that it's similar to the vampire bat scenario in that the 15% is from the model that a vampire would be able to drink enough secretly mm-hmm. uh, that you wouldn't notice and it would be able to get away. Right. So, like, maybe it sneaks into your bedroom at night and it just, like, opens a vein and it starts going. Uh, 15% is the cap before your heart rate starts to change and you would notice effects on your circulatory system. Uh, and in particular, the model for this study, they had their vampires specifically drinking from the external carotid artery, and they've also modeled the aorta and carotid arteries as being smooth tubes with an assumed air pressure of one standard atmospheric pressure unit. So obviously this is not uh, true to life, right? Like we don't all have perfectly smooth tubes with the exact perfect atmospheric pressure in it. But hey, we got to solve these problems somehow. So as we previously mentioned, they they decided to go with the bat model of blood drinking. Makes more sense than looking at mosquitoes, right? They were looking at free-flowing lapping, as we discussed, rather than <laughs> sucking from a pair of uh, 0.5-millimeter neck punctures. And then they uh, calculated the average diameter of the aorta and the five connected arteries, as well as blood pressure and the heart-driving velocity of the flowing blood. So they really got into mm-hmm. the biology and the fluid mechanics of the whole thing. But they didn't, they didn't factor in anticoagulants. So this is assuming that there's no anticoagulant uh, chemical applied by the vampire. 
Interesting. I, d- I didn't notice that during my first read of this. Uh, now, a few equations later, the researchers determined this, that any self-respecting vampire needs 6.4 minutes to drain a polite 0.75 liters of blood from his or her thrall. So to put that in perspective, it takes less than an hour to give 0.47 liters during a blood drive where they take 8 to 10 percent of your blood. Yeah, but they don't drink any of it. I know. They, they drink virtually well, none of it. Well, we don't know. I mean, they might be. I mean, go, that's what those curtains are there yeah. for. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, <clears throat> it is, if it is used, it is, it becomes a part of another person. So yeah. it's, Might as know, well in, in a it. sense, it's, it's consumed. <laughs> now, these results are based on a couple mathematical assumptions that the, the people doing the research made, uh, specifically about human biology. So I'm going to run the, through these real okay. quick. Uh, the first one is that the five Arteries that split out of our aorta have total even thickness, which, you know, I doubt that's true in everybody. Uh, the diameter of the aorta is four centimeters, which is that's known as the uh, the known carotid artery diameter. Right. That seems big to me when you think about that. Four centimeters. I guess that makes sense. It's but, a major highway. Yeah, blood, totally. Yeah. Uh, and the velocity of blood coming out of your aorta has a mean speed, not not like mean speed, but an <laughs> average speed of point one milliseconds. Uh, the internal arteries have a 0.5 centimeter diameter. The average human blood pressure would be 100 millimeters of mercury. And the average density of whole blood is 1,060 kilograms per cubic meter at room temperature. So they thought of it all. Uh, and they calculated it out based on the average human body having a total of five liters of blood inside of it. Okay. All right, so that gives us uh, that gives us some you know a, a physics grounding mm-hmm. on exactly how much blood is going to be taken, how long uh, it takes to consume it. Yeah, so to crunch that fifteen percent, it's six point four mm-hmm. minutes. That seems. I mean, I guess like maybe I'm a light sleeper, but that <laughs> seems to me like I would notice. Um, but you you know like I'm thinking Nosferatu style, like sneaks into the room and there's a. A woman whose neck is is just uh, positioned just the right way. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. Maybe they just don't notice. Yeah, I mean, as long as she doesn't have a neck pillow or anything, yeah. or if she's you know if she's sleeping under the covers completely. Yeah, neck pillows like modern uh, enemy of vampires. I never <laughs> even thought about that. Yeah, because you can't very well just pull that off, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, that's the micro version of it, right? Of how mm-hmm. the drinking of the blood would work on one vampire, on one human, if they were trying to drink it real quick, get away with it without getting caught, or just have a thrall on hand and keep them alive. Okay. Let's broaden this a little bit. So we turn to Anissa Mary Ramia, uh, who is at the University of Ottawa in 2011, and for a mathematic modeling of infectious diseases class wrote the paper vampires do they want to suck our blood and uh, <laughs> i want to i want to take an aside here to say i was disappointed in you and i am disappointed in ramia uh, for spelling want with a w it should have been do they want to <laughs> suck our blood cuz that would have that would have been that would have been good yeah. cuz i believe you had the do they want to suck our blood or, or want to suck your blood in the title of the the original piece about the, <laughs> the story we just talked about okay so Ramia's goal here was to use mathematical models to deduce whether vampires could exist. In particular, 
Could we as human beings live alongside a creature who wants to suck our blood? So is it a sustainable yeah. uh, creature? Yeah. So she looks at, uh, she proposes several models and I'll present them here. And she uses theoretical data based off of the television show Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So she's <laughs> working off of some of the premises within that mythos cuz you know vampire mythos varies from, from Yeah, you got to ultimately show. you got to choose one and if you got to go with one I guess guess it uh, seems like a pretty good, good one. Yeah. yeah. So um she starts with the first model that was actually written by somebody else. It was written by uh, Dr. Sohang Gandhi and Dr. Costas J I'm going to butcher this name. Eftfemu sure. Sorry. Uh Costas. Anyways, they had this really cool paper called Ghosts, Vampires, and Zombies, Cinema Fiction versus Physics Reality. It was published in Skeptical Inquirer in 27. And we're going to call this, or at least Ramia does, the SV model. Okay, this is the bare bones model. So going with statistics that say that the present human population is 6.9 billion people and rising, these guys argued that vampires never existed and could have never existed because if they did, the human race would have been wiped out in three years. Okay. The way that they figured this out was by using a mathematical concept called geometric progression. And this is used to calculate the interest in economics and finance or to find the quantity of decaying radioactive elements in geology and physics. So cool application of a pre-existing model. The constraint there is that the world population is constant. So there's no, in their study, there's no birth rate or death rate fluctuations, okay? Uh, it also assumes that there is a constant rate that vampires turn humans into other vampires, only doing so on the first of each month. So I don't know why that would be particularly the date, but so the vampires have all gotten together and said, okay, we can only do this on the first of each month. <laughs> Uh, and so this susceptible population would decline over time while the vampire population would increase at the same time at that rate, there would be no humans left on earth after three years. Now, one of the obvious problems I've, I've, I've had when I've encountered this kind of argument before is that you're assuming the vampires are not making some efforts to keep themselves from destroying each other Yeah. because even if there is you know, a, an unsustainable species. I mean, you can make arguments that the humans in our present form are also an unsustainable species. Yeah. And, you know, and maybe we're doomed, but also maybe we're able to stave off extinction by tr- curbing our uh, self-destructive tendencies at least a little bit. Yeah. Ramia keeps adding complexities like that into mm-hmm. the various models, but she never gets to that one, which is, yeah, I like that idea. Like that w- vampires, which are, you know, based off of our, our anatomy and our psychology and culture, right. uh, would probably have as much infighting as we humans do, right? They wouldn't just all cooperate perfectly in order to drain blood together. Yeah. I mean, surely not everybody gets the good blood. No, but not everybody gets exactly. to have as much blood as they want. Mm-hmm. So she extrapolates their data out to the second model, and this is the SVR model. And it includes data for the rate that humans are turned, the rate that humans are killed by a vampire, as well as the birth rate and the death rate, uh, and as well as all non-human related death rates for vampires. Okay. And that wasn't, um, uh, extrapolated on other than I think that that is just, maybe it's vampire on vampire violence. Or like accidental beef. Ma- yeah, like you <laughs> accidentally like walk into the sun or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is, uh, she later does get into human on vampire violence and how that would factor into it. Ah. 
So her next one, and this is it, the SVR plus model. This is her third model. Uh, it's basically that humans are aware of the existence of vampires and they actively hunt and kill them. And it's quantifiable. There's a rate that we can quantify how fast humans can kill vampires. So that would mean as an employed vampire hunter in this scenario, you have a quota that you yeah. are expected to hit each month. Yeah. And there's no reason you shouldn't be able to hit it. And not only that, not only are all the vampire uh, hunters expected to meet their quotas, but then there's also a slayer mm-hmm. uh, that is more efficient at killing vampires than any of the other hunters. So uh, this is factoring in the Buffy mythos, obviously. So that's on top of all of the other data predictions in the mathematical models presented so far. We had two more models to go. Oh, I really hope one includes Blade. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be awesome if they were like, and then Blade's there. I I think she would just, she would just be ice skating uphill with that one. All right. (laughs) We'll cut that little bit of, of awkwardness. All right, so, yeah, Model 4 does not include Blade, but uh, it adds in the rationale that it's not in vampires' best interest to turn every single human that they drink from, right? Right. And this kind of goes along with the other study that we were just talking about with that 15% drinking. So I think we can assume that that's kind of how they're working here. Uh, and the reasons why, well, there'd be too many dead bodies that would arouse suspicion, first of all, but then there would also be an increase in the competition for human blood resources. And then that's probably where you get the infighting between vampires. Mm-hmm. So it uses parameters that uh, in order to be turned, you have to both be bitten by a vampire and then you subsequently have to drink a vampire's blood and then you turn into a vampire. Ah, uh, yes. And that's certainly the model we see in a, a, a lot of uh, vampire fiction. Yeah. And the last one uh, she calls the predator-prey model. And this uses uh, this is an actual population dynamic um, mathematical theory called predator-prey. Uh, in, it's in biology, the idea that the carrying capacity of a given environment is the maximum number of a particular species that can be supported and sustained indefinitely, given that food, water, and other necessities are all available in that environment. And it was previously approached by a guy named Dr. Brian Thomas in 2002 in a paper called Vampire Population Ecology. So she cleaned that up and applied it here. I love that we are not the only ones who are uh, hungry, no pun intended, for vampire science. Yeah, there's there's a legacy here of uh, of sort of uh, epidemic uh, consideration of uh, vampires. So the first case here represents that uh, human and vampire populations eventually go extinct. The second case that she shows are when vampires are extinct, but the human population hovers somewhere near its carrying capacity. And the third case is where human and vampire populations are capable of coexisting. And the important thing to notice here is that the human equilibrium population does not depend on its own carrying capacity. However, the vampire population does depend on the human population's carrying capacity. So basically, there needs to be a a constant influx of human population in order for vampires to have a sustainable coexistence with us. Otherwise, we go back to scenario number one, where they drink us dry in three years, and then what are they left with? It's like that movie, uh, what is it called, Daybreakers, the one with Ethan Hawke, where everybody's Mm -hmm. a vampire. Um. So, yeah, the human population doesn't depend on its own carrying capacity. The vampire population does. We are not large enough to support a vampire population. So I think by looking at this mathematical model, we can deduce that there aren't vampires. Okay. Maybe. Mathematically, 
Yeah. We're, we're safe. You yeah. don't have to. You can take that neck pillow off tonight. <laughs> Nothing yeah. is going to drink your blood. Although I will point out, and this is a note in her actual paper, she says, this does not take into account, quote, large scale supernatural events like the apocalypse. OK. <laughs> <laughs> so she admits, look, there's not a lot of data here for her to work with, but she's basing it off the TV show. Sure. If somebody out there wants to go and watch every Buffy episode and note the frequency of vampire encounters, feeds, kills and turns. You can apply that in these models and extrapolate the data outward. And well, what I like about these studies is they kind of give you a starting point. And from there, you can sort of tweak the vampire mythos to make it more sustainable or more believable yeah. or throw in certain behaviors or safeguards that are, that are going to help it make sense. This is what I feel like Del Toro did. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, he, he maybe didn't sit down with these mathematical models, but like they think of stuff like this in that show, you know, the practicalities of a vampire invasion, especially upon New York. Yeah, and also looking at it uh, in the strain, uh, looking at it too, is where you can have the organism and then you're going to have um, sort of offshoots and mutations yeah. that can be less sustainable and therefore are a risk to both the humans and the established vampires. Yeah. Well, by applying these models, she concluded that an, if an outbreak of vampires were to break out in an area like, say, Sunnydale, California, mm-hmm. uh, where people were generally aware and there was a slayer involved. Okay. And this uh, is not counting Hellmouth. Yeah. She said no supernatural it, events. Exactly. Okay. It would be less likely uh, than an endemic that would occur in a population like somewhere like where she lives. Ottawa. Okay. Uh, and she says, look, there's no slayer and the population in Ottawa is generally unaware of vampires. So it might be a problem there. But she takes into account, and this is where it gets crazy. She applies what she calls the G factor to a locale. And this is how much garlic is in particular areas. Ah. <laughs> and the way that she does this is she takes Google Maps and she plots out all the shawarma shops that are in Ottawa. And she scientifically says that the reasons the scent of garlic would make it difficult for vampires to navigate through a populated area are because of these shawarma shops. She plots it on the map, and then she even gives each store an effective radius. And the way that she uh, mathematically computes this radius is based on the rating of the restaurant, its popularity, and therefore how much garlic you could assume is in each diner's system after they leave. So as they're leaving the restaurant, they're creating this radius because they've got like a certain amount of garlic in their blood and on their lips. Huh. Interesting. And that the vampires would smell that and basically like veer away from it. Okay. So there are certain, there, there would be certain cuisines that, uh, and then therefore certain geographical regions. Yeah. The vampires would just have to avoid. Like they would just could not go to Italy. Right. There are parts of China they would not be able to, to get a firm, uh, a foothold in. They, they have to really go to those Icelandic uh, countries. Oh, yeah. 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 And she finally recommends. She doesn't break down the math on this, but she says, you know what might also be a good idea is bless all the bodies of water in town. That way it would make it difficult for the vampires to cross them. <laughs> uh, and I think they don't they do something to that effect in uh, in the strain or is it just that they can't cross moving bodies? Of yeah, water? they play into that, which is another okay. uh, which is an often overlooked uh, little detail from yeah. vampire uh, folklore is, is that uh, they can't cross moving bodies of water. And they, I think they play into the strain that it might have something to do with, like, essentially their little worms. So something they, like yeah. that, yeah. And I, I think, if I remember correctly, I hope this isn't a spoiler for the TV show, that the way they get away with it is that they just, like, hop on the back of, like, subway trains that are going underneath the rivers yeah, and I stuff. I think so. Yeah. Well, you know, another uh, bit from uh, from vampire folklore is that it's rarely 
explored, certainly in the scientific literature, but also in fiction, is the idea that they're obsessed with, with knots and, oh. uh, and like intricate fabrics. I think the only, uh, bit of fiction, uh, that I've seen it used in, uh, is, um, Habit. I don't know if you remember no. this one. Larry, uh, Fresden, I believe his name No, is. I don't know this one. Okay. Yeah. It's, a, it was an old indie picture. Yeah. Uh, kind of a, a slight, like, 90s indie remake of Dracula, but very much a, a an, an indie film with an indie vibe. Okay. And there's a scene where the vampire is transfixed by, uh, you know, some sort of knotted fabric. Interesting. Yeah. So they're just, like, constantly tying their shoes. Yeah, what's the situation is that if you want to vamp, you want to protect yourself from a vampire, just hang like an intricate knot, uh, or some sort of woven thing outside of your house. Oh. The vampire will come to it and then they're just transfixed by it and oh. they start messing around with it. Then the sun comes up and they're toast. I wonder if that's connected to knots of garlic. Ooh, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. They just double up on the hunt. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, that's it. We got vampire yeah. math, vampire physics, vampire evolution. I think we figured it out. So what do you think? Uh, vampires possible? <laughs> Me? Uh, well, yeah. so certainly if we base some of those hypotheses for vampire bats mm-hmm. off of human, humanoid vampires, you know, maybe they were drinking blood off of megafauna. At yeah, one exactly. Point, and they, but then they went into the shadows. They've been sneaking that 15% off of us for a long time now. But the only way that they would be able to get away with it is if they kept themselves in check with that 15%. Otherwise, uh, they would either kill the entire human race or we would figure out that they're there and we would hunt them down. Yeah, they, if, for them to exist, it would just be this very stealthy, very strategic and, and just, and also just very dangerous position. Mm. Um, you know, like the vampire bats, it would just be, it, it's a heist with high stakes. And they have to they have to carry it out just so in order to avoid capture and extermination. Well, I'm going to sleep better tonight. I'm probably going to sleep better than I have since I was a little kid. And I saw that episode of The Amazing Spider-Man that, where Dracula showed up. <laughs> so um, thank you to the scientists involved in all this research. Yes, we can all put aside our garlic neck pillows tonight. All right. So, so there you have it. Uh, hey. If you want more on this topic, other topics, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find the landing page for this episode. Um, various bits of vampire content. You can just throw vampire into the search uh, bar there. Uh, you'll also find links out to our various social media accounts, such as Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr, also Instagram now. And we're blow the mind on most of those. And if you're a vampire and you have a secret method for getting away with drinking more than 15% of a person's blood in one sitting, please write us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 